0: Still with us is our own Vince Signorella, Bloomberg News global macro strategist. And we want to roll into the conversation Peter Cheer, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. He's joining us on the phone um, from Connecticut. Vince, give us some idea of what you folks have been talking about uh, on Bloomberg's, uh, on the Bloomberg Squawk Box. Um, what are you hearing?
2: Well, it's, it's really interesting to see the momentum and the enthusiasm in the market to say we spoke about this yesterday, Mia Culpa. I think I said something like if we saw a three million number, the markets wouldn't like this. Uh, they liked it a lot, um, even though absolutely most most traders think it's actually underreported. There was a lot of problems getting to reporting, uh, especially on the websites, uh, jobless claims. So next Thursday is probably going to look even uglier. But where one trader said to me today, he goes, "We priced the." We, we priced the recession in mid-February, and now we're pricing the recovery. So markets mm. seem to really be jumping way ahead of themselves. Um, the, you spoke before um, Mr. Murphy came on about a roll-off today. It rolled off the highs, a little bit um, momentum lost when Italy reported a big jump in cases. I think it was their most yeah. jump in five days. Right. Um, and yet again, traders looking past that and telling me that's just higher because they're testing more. So the market is seems to want to buy this today and you know, I don't stand in front of it just yet. But I, I do believe um, certainly there is going to be worse to come. and There will be other opportunities to get in if you didn't get in today.
1: So, Peter Chair, come on in here. Uh, was reading your report from yesterday with great interest uh, talking about needing a bigger boat. I like the metaphor there. Help us understand sort of what that is and when we may need it.
3: So I think I look at it from two different perspectives. One is what the Fed is doing and the Fed basically went all in over the weekend and on Monday morning, and I think the entire market now believes that the Fed will be responsive. I think when we look, though, at what is going through as the CARES Act, it's a little bit light in a few places, and I think ultimately as soon as that gets passed, they're going to have to start talking about a you know, more CARES or a CARES Act 2 um, to fulfill some of the needs, and I think that's what the market's going to wind up needing.
0: Yeah, I do think what's interesting already, the conversation, um, Peter, is, you know, phase four and phase five. And when we get on the other side of this virus, we're still going to need, or companies and individuals are still going to need assistance on the other side of this.
3: Yeah, I think we need really two things. And one is to make sure that people can, you know, make their payments and get paid and live their lives but it's going to be crucial to the turnaround that things don't get bogged down and someone missing a rent payment and that involving lawyers or various other things. It's that aspect that will make the turnaround, when it comes time to do it, much slower. So I think there's a lot of progress that's still got to be made in that front in terms of how we're going to deal with missed payments, making sure people have enough so they don't have to miss those payments. That's going to be, I think, where the you know, Congress and the Senate have to focus next.
0: Well, and quickly, something like that, if you're not making your mortgage payments or something, then it becomes more of a financial, potentially, crisis, right, if the banks aren't getting the money that they're counting on. And And this, to me, has
3: really been what I'm calling a bottoms-up problem, where it starts with workers not being able to make their payments, which is very, very different than a financial crisis, which was largely a top-down problem. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to take a different set of circumstances to address it. Um, But I do think we've got some room for the upside in the markets in the near term, Um, given where equities are, given some optimism. And again, while the virus has been bad, there are signs maybe that we can beat this.
1: So build on that thought, Vince Signorella, because what I hear uh, Peter saying, and Carol and I have been talking about this a lot over the past few days, is the devil's in the details. Clearly, that was one of the things that was holding up uh, this stimulus or rescue package from passing the Congress. From an investor's mindset, are they, is the market overall less worried about the details and more uh, concerned with sort of directionally what's happening?
3: Yeah, uh, I think it's a uh, little bit of both. Yeah, I, one key to me was there were problems in the credit markets, and we kind of saw this rolling problem where it started in high yield and emerging markets and moved to long-dated investment grade, and it was moving to that front end, and it was really kind of gumming up the system. Even commercial paper was struggling, which is lo- the very front end, one year and less. When the Fed came in, it freed that up. So I think it took any sort of corporate liquidity crisis off the table. Mm. That's a big factor for, you know, the markets. And I do think investors are being a little bit rational, and you see, okay, who's going to benefit from this? Who doesn't do well when this plays out? And some sectors, frankly, just are so oversold. If you look at it, the energy sector is doing okay today, despite the fact that oil is going down again.
0: Yeah, exactly. Vince, come on in. I know you wanted to say something as well.
3: I
2: think Peter makes a great point, especially that bottom-up bottom, uh, bottom up approach as opposed to the financial crisis. I think, you know, that what what everyone seems to be wanting to know for sure and hoping that uh, the, the Washington doesn't move people back to work too soon is, is getting the health part of the equation right. If we get the health part of the equation right, the, we know we're going to have a poor second quarter. We know there's going to be some transition, potential recession if we get another poor uh, third quarter. But the general feel of investors and the people I talk to on the street is fourth quarter should turn this around, especially with holiday spending. We should have a little zest in that. The first quarter of next year should be good as well. You know, if you wanted to say pricing this with forward earnings, we're obviously looking past potentially two quarters at this point. It may be looking a little too past. We're definitely going to see some ugly numbers coming up. About the unemployment numbers, I mean, Bullard said we could see 30%, which is
4: amazing. Yeah, um, so,
2: yeah and so I would to, just add one other numbers. thing
3: I think people are starting to talk about, and it's probably a bit premature, but what sort of true fiscal stimulus will we see once people are able to go back to work and socialize, and will we see a repatriation of some of the supply chains? And I think that is actually going to be an important factor. I think companies are going to reconsider what their supply chains look like, and maybe their supply chain should look a little bit like their customer base, and that could be a big boon to growth here in the third and fourth quarter and early next year.
0: But we do have to be concerned about how steep this drop is, right? Because people out of work, it's harder sometimes to get them back to work. and I do wonder about that, Peter. Just got about 30 seconds here.
3: Yes, again, I think that's why Congress has to and the Senate has to act aggressively and quickly, and I keep trying to remind people, Lehman was not a moment. Stock markets were up after Lehman. The stock market never recovered after the sale TARP vote. So I think it's important to get these things quick and pile them on on top of each other to prevent that downfall. Because I do agree that psychological impact of the downfall once it's too long is really hard to
1: recover. Yeah. All right. We're going to leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you so much, Vince Signorella, global macro strategist for Bloomberg. Check that out on the terminal. Just go to your launch pad if you're on the Bloomberg and type squawk. And Peter Cheer, uh, always great to catch up with you as well. We really appreciate your insights. Head of Macro Strategy at Academy Securities, joining us on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut.
5: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio.
1: Let's get into the medical side of this. Lucky for us, uh, we have a great relationship with the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, You may know why. The Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Arturo Casadoval is the chair of the Department of the Molecular Microbiology and Immunology uh, group there. He joins us on the phone from Baltimore. Dr. Casadoval, thank you so much for spending some time with us.
6: Uh, Thank you for inviting me.
1: All right. So help us understand what we've learned medically about this. And specifically, I know you're leading an effort around antibodies from recovered patients. Help us understand what you're learning.
6: So um, we are trying to get in place an old therapy, something that's been around for over 100 years, which is that you can take the antibodies from people who recover and use them to treat or prevent disease in in people who are susceptible. And these antibodies are transferred by plasma. So what you do is you get people who recover to donate plasma, you test the plasma for antibodies, and then you use that plasma on people who need it.
0: So how easily is it to do. I mean, obviously it was easy. We'd have it done. But talk to us about how easy in this current situation where we, we've got a health system that's being stressed, um, just trying to take care of the increasing number of patients, especially in some of those hard-hit cities, be it New York, be it on the West Coast and elsewhere around the world. World.
6: So um, so from a point of view of, of logistics, uh, this is something that the medical system knows how to do. Mm. Uh, we, <clears throat> the... Uh, Food and Drug Administration provided uh, permission yesterday for its compassionate use. Uh, It is going to put a tax on uh, resources, but on the other hand, if you were to use it and, for example, prevent people from going into the intensive care unit because they responded to the antibody therapy, it, it could help alleviate some of the problems that are going on in the current system.
1: And so help us understand the timeline, both of how it works um, and how soon we may see it. So if, if a patient is able to get this therapy, how soon do you see them respond if they respond positively?
6: Uh, well, that will, depend, <clears throat> that will depend on the, on the different uh, infectious diseases. We don't know with coronavirus. Mm. So what I would say about this therapy is that it has a high likelihood of success based on history, but that we won't know till it works because we're dealing with a new disease right so right so it's it's the but yet yet it may be the only thing that we have immediately available and uh, as to the logistics uh the logistics complicated thing is you got to locate people who are willing uh and more and i will tell you that many people will be happy to, to donate you need to bring him to a place in which they can donate the plasma it needs to be tested for antibodies and then that unit of plasma can be used on patients in the hospital.
0: So randomized control trials are the next step. Um, So how do we get that going? Is it already going?
6: Well, no, compassionate use is getting going in New York City. And uh, I understand that there are, are recruitment efforts in some of the medical centers, and I assume that compassionate use will begin in a few days. The randomized controlled trials are critical to know the efficacy of this. Mm. Uh, You really want to know whether this works. You want to know how to use it. You want to know when to use it. And uh, we have applied to the FDA uh, for permission to do uh, clinical trials, and we're working with the FDA. And once we get permission from them, I think the next step is to actually set it up. But given the large numbers of patients in the hospitals and given the emergency that we're in, it's possible that we could get information and efficacy in a very short time. What do I mean by a short time? A few weeks rather, wow. than, rather than your typical clinical trial that goes on for months to years.
1: And so one sort of very specific question, uh, if someone donates plasma, Dr. Casa Duvall, how many patients can be uh, essentially treated uh, with that one patient's plasma or antibodies? So an
6: ex- it's an excellent question, and it depends how you use it. I think at a minimum, it's going to be one-to-one. One. That is, okay. one person donates and gives it. But we have estimates that depending on the antibody available, you may be able to use uh, treat two patients from one. However, if you were to break it down into uh, and use it for, for prophylaxis, that is, if you were to use it for preventing uh, in, uh, disease, you may need much smaller amounts.
4: Right. Um,
6: and and uh, this is something that will ha- will have to be worked out. But the the important thing about antibody is that antibody always works best when given early. Right. So. So one of the, we don't really know how well it's going to work on a compassionate uh, use because inevitably those are very sick patients. But I think that the regulatory agencies have decided that, you know, this may have a chance of working and and it's relatively safe, therefore compassionate use is appropriate.
0: Dr. Casadevall, I am curious because I do feel like we're all, uh, the medical community in particular, Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, going after a lot of different things to try and figure this out as fast as possible. How, how do you as a medical community organize so that we're spending the time on the things that we should be to try and get this under control, get the virus under control?
6: Well, people are working very hard, and I think that we're trying to communicate, and we're trying to figure out what other people are doing. And clearly in hospitals, there is coordination, uh, the hospital administration and hospital institutional review boards know know what's happening. So I think that even though things have been done in the middle of a pandemic, I think things are a lot more organized than one might think. Uh, And I would point out to you that we have gone from talking about this to getting FDA approval for compassionate use in a matter of weeks. I mean, I think that that gives you a sense of how rapid this organization is able to uh, to to deliverance in, in some ways, some, something right. that in ordinary times would have been very difficult to do.
1: Well, we wish you only the best of luck, and this is incredibly important work. We're very grateful that you took some time to tell us about it. Dr. Arturo Casadevall is the chair of the Department of the Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, that is supported by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Wow. I hope this works.
0: Yeah, right? It just sounds so logical. All right, so good stuff to know.
1: You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here with you on a busy Thursday afternoon. <laughs> just sort of catching my breath here, uh, Carol, because yeah, a lot going on. it's been fast moving to say the least. And we know it's been fast moving for the magazine. Uh, some really interesting coverage around Boeing. And we want to get into that with Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's on the phone from Brooklyn. And Jim Ellis, assistant assistant managing editor for Bloomberg Business Week, he's on the phone from the great state of New Jersey. Joel, I want to start with you. Set this up for us because this is a classic Business Week story in a lot of ways.
7: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously there's been a ton of, of just interest in sort of what's happening on the bailout front, and a company like Boeing is an especially interesting one because, um, you know, they're one of two uh, companies in the world that basically makes all the planes that we used to fly on, and, you know, as everyone knows, like, that was a company that also became embroiled in, uh, you know, a a major uh, catastrophe and was under the gun for, for a lot of that, and then, lo and behold, you know, here comes the coronavirus and is totally throwing a wrench in all of it. So, of course, they've, um, they've raised their hand as part of this bailout process. Uh, you know, it's $60 billion was the number that kind of came out. But they're not alone in terms of just being one of many actors that are suddenly, um, you know, raising their hands and act, a- asking for government aid. And that was sort of where Jim Ellis came in on this. And we did a, sort of a big takeout in the business section looking at all the ways that um, the bailout moment is is here and also that there's some resistance to giving bailouts to companies like uh, Boeing. Jim, um, what, did we, what did we learn?
4: Well, I think one of the things that was so interesting about taking a look at Boeing is that um, uh, you know, there, there's not a lot of question that um, you know, this is a business that has been slammed by the virus. I mean, obviously, um, you know, this is a business that supplies airlines. Airlines, you know, they depend on people to fly. People are not flying. You know and so basically they can 't buy planes, and so a company that sells planes is in a in a bad way now, the issue though is um, you know if there 's this honeypot that Washington has to give out, should they be giving it to you know certain types of companies, and should they be giving it to companies with all sorts of strings, and should they be giving it to companies that a lot of people consider to be I don't want to use the word bad actors, but at least people who have not, you know, often behaved in ways that a lot of uh, people in Washington have agreed with. And so Boeing became this very interesting thing to look at for a number of reasons. First, you know, they have, um, you know, in the past decade, they've done about $40, $44 billion in stock buybacks. Now, a lot of people say that that, you know, has basically given money back to investors, didn't really sort of build the business per se on that. Now they've come up and said, oh, God, you know, this is happening now. We think that the, auto, that, that the aerospace business ought to have $60 billion in, um, in help. Now that's, uh, and so a lot of people are saying, why, if you've done in the, past year, in the past years, given back a lot of money that you should have maybe saved, and right. now you're coming to beg from us, especially right. after the behavior that sort of came out in the 737 MAX investigations that um, a lot of people thought that they were a little uh, you know that they were not as uh, following the program as closely as possible and that pro you know that program you know sort of went bad and led to over 300 deaths.
0: Well what's interesting Jim is that and I totally get this debate um, but it's it's not just about Boeing. Boeing has a massive supply chain and I do wonder when they're talking about we need a 60 billion dollar bailout how much goes for them, how much goes for others?
4: Well, um, that is um, uh, a a question that still hasn't been answered. Um, The way this worked is that um, uh, Boeing has, uh, you know, said that that that's what they think should go for the aerospace business. Well, let's face it, most of the aerospace business in the U.S. is based around, you know, Boeing and to some extent some other defense contractors. But um, a lot of it would go to the um, uh, people in the supply chain. But what's happening is that Boeing would, Probably be the people who sort of decide who gets the money now they have um, as they like to say they 've got seventeen thousand suppliers, and that the aerospace business supports about two point five million jobs in the u s that 's a lot of jobs particularly it 's a lot of manufacturing jobs, so um, people want to um, you know be right by them, but at the same time, people are saying shouldn 't there be more transparency about where that goes I mean currently. In the uh, what little we know about the real details of the, of the package, so far it looks like um, two ways that somebody like Boeing could be supported. Number one is uh, through the direct support that the, uh, the the package gives to, well, indirectly they'll get they'll benefit from the airlines. There's going to be right. probably about 46 billion for the airlines, but uh, there's a 17 billion dollar uh, set aside for. companies that affect national security. Now, Boeing is the second largest defense contractor in the U.S., and it also is the only uh, major company in the U.S. that can actually build a passenger jet. So in that sense, a lot of people are saying that looks to be almost a little earmark, you know, for Boeing. We don't know that yet. We won't know it until probably um, the money starts heading out. But in this sense, we understand that they're they're gonna, they're not going to be forgotten. Let's put it that way.
1: Well, and Joel, it does feel like one of the big questions as we go over the next few months and maybe even into twenty twenty one is who gets what and who sort of gets to maybe not survive but who gets to thrive in the aftermath of all this.
7: Yeah, I mean, the and, and the trough is like once there's this much money sloshing around, you can bet everybody's coming to the trough to take a turn. And, you know, we're seeing it like cruise ships, casinos. The casino is one that I think Jim and I have talked about a little bit and that I just continue to be really interested in. One reason being like, you think about Nevada's role in the current political climate. Hmm. um, There's a lot of, a lot of voters that work in the casino industry, which happens to be a gigantic source of employment for people. It's a huge service economy. So, so I think, you know, the, the um, the number of industries and companies like we've only really begun to see the beginning, frankly, of all the companies that will start to raise their hands in the weeks ahead.
1: Well, and it's interesting to uh, guys that this notion that, uh, you know, you think about the political donations and, Joel, as you rightly point out, this is a presidential election year ultimately. And we know the way politics work in Washington, for sure. Jim Ellis assistant managing editor for Business Week, overseeing the business section. That Boeing story anchors the section uh, in this week's issue. He joined us on the phone from New Jersey. And Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, joined us on the phone from Brooklyn. Carol?
0: You know, Jason, it's just these larger discussions that we're all having. I mean, you know, what's the responsibility of a company? I mean, nobody could have anticipated this situation. But safe to say that Boeing has made some mistakes in terms of You know, where they got to the situation prior to the virus concerns and the impact it's having on them. At the same time, you can understand that, you know, when it comes to making planes, it's Boeing, it's Airbus. But Russia and China are eagerly eyeing the global airline uh, and airplane market. So, um, you know, there's just none of these are black and white issues, unfortunately. Watch this space for sure. Yeah. I'm my car.
3: is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for The Drive to the Close. Back with us is Ryan Dietrich. He's Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, $764 billion in assets under management. Uh, Ryan joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. So, Ryan, uh, Jason and I, we're just in the New York metro area. Tell me a little bit about Charlotte, North Carolina, how you're doing personally, your family, and just kind of what's the what's the surroundings like? Hey,
5: Carol and Jason. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I mean, things are probably similar, right? It is a ghost town when you drive around. I mean, all of our neighbors just hunkering down. I go to the office sometimes, but for the most part, we are all just being very careful and staying to ourselves. And honestly, thanks for having me on this week and not last week because there's a little bit of green to talk about, some good news finally, right?
1: yeah absolutely it's interesting to just staying with that for a second ryan i i am heartened candidly to hear you say uh that charlotte not that i want anybody to be locked down but you know the sense that we are getting as we talk to people is that in different parts of the country there's definitely a different vibe i have a lot of family down in atlanta and they're you know presenting sort of a mixed picture uh from what we're seeing here in the new york metro area where people are completely locked down and i do wonder for charlotte given it's hardcore, you know, sort of uh, attachment to the financial industry and knowing how much is going on uh, here in New York, if maybe some of that is dictated there.
5: No, uh, it, it is. I mean, you're right. I mean, like with LPL, we're a financial institution. We have to be open, right? I mean, people need access to their money. So it's a little different in our world. But again, most other people are pretty much locked down. And you know, my kids, they're outside just playing basketball a lot during the day. So honestly, I don't think they're really too affected by this. No school and basketball. They're, they're doing okay.
1: Right.
0: So, talk to us about some of your clients, and I'm assuming folks have been calling because, yep, it may be up today, but still we're down right. a lot for the year. So, Ryan, what is it that uh, some of your clients are calling you about? What do they want to know?
5: Yeah, exactly, Carol. So, I mean, I've done conference calls every single day with our advisors, right? We've got 17,000 advisors, and obviously they're all extremely concerned, but it's really awesome what not just our advisors, all advisors are doing for their clients during this incredible time of volatility. And the thing that we're saying is, hey, as we're speaking, guys, the S&P is up 15% the last three days. That's the greatest three-day rally since April 1933. The flip side, of course, is we have one of the most vicious sell-offs we've ever seen heading into this. And our friends at Strategas Research did a note. They found 25 bear market rallies going back to the 60s. The average bounce 15 percent. So, you know, we don't think by any means are we out of the woods. We do think there's some positives. We can get into that. But, you know, this is kind of where bounces tend to happen. And, you know, we might, before we know it, kind of be working our way back down as bottoms are a process, as everyone's been saying for a while now.
1: And so, you know, Brian, you have such a great historical perspective on the market, as you just demonstrated. You know, as you look back and you try and understand this in the context of Previous bear markets, previous downturns, mm-hmm. previous real dislocations. Uh, how do you how do you get your arms around it?
5: Yeah, it's tough to get our arms around it, right? Because this is the fastest bear market ever in only 16 days and the fastest 30% uh, correction from all-time high to all-time low. So we've really never seen one quite like this. But let's compare it to 2008 for a second. You know, that was a financial crisis. The first people to lose their jobs then were who? Rich bankers on Wall Street, to be honest. Who's losing their jobs now? You know, it's it's the waitresses and, and a lot of people like that. So this, is a, this is a business crisis that we have going on now. And and another thing about 2008, we really didn't know what the problem was until after the fact. All we knew was stocks were going down. We know what the problem is now, right? It's the coronavirus and the uncertainty that it causes. But look what happened today with the tragic, you know, over 3 million jobs in initial claims. Well... Now there's more certainty. We know we're in a recession. We know it's going to be rough. Market thinks uncertainty. But now we can remove some of that uncertainty in the fact, okay, that's why stocks are up so much. The uncertainty to a degree was removed with the positives of the fiscal stimulus plan that's obviously inching closer to um, you know, being enacted here.
0: So, okay. So, again, in terms of strategy, how do you approach it at this point? Because as you say, you know, finding a bottom is a process, so we may not be there yet.
5: Uh, exactly, Carol, and like I said, I mean we're not so sure. Think about 2008, you know, with major lows in October, and then you made new lows five months later in March. The crash of '87 eventually didn't bottom officially until December. So the way December of '87, the way we're looking at this is we're using a, um, like a playbook, so to speak, a road to recovery playbook. And there's five things we're looking at. And I won't get into all the details, but we're starting to check a lot of those off. So what we're looking at doing is simply rebalancing a lot of our portfolios, right? Stocks have pulled back a lot. Bonds have been volatile also. So we're just thinking simply rebalancing is a great opportunity for your average longer-term investor. But also for longer-term investors, I mean, stocks did just pull back 34% on the S&P. The average pullback in a recession is 37%. And, you know, so in that realm, I know we bounced a lot the last few days, but we really think now could be a time potentially to add, could we have another 50% correction like we saw those previous two bear markets, anything's possible. We really don't think that's the case. So with this very quick record monetary policy coupled with fiscal. So we're dipping our toe in, rebalancing some portfolios, and in a couple more months, we'll dip our toe in again, a dollar cost average. This is um, probably when we all look back in 10 years. We're going to remember where we were when we stayed home for a month, but hopefully um, investors didn't panic and they used it as an opportunity,
1: really. And so Ryan, what do you look at in terms of sources of information from a medical perspective? you know so in, in terms of like understanding the data to give you some sense of when this peaks or the mm-hmm. outbreak and, and the the spread, I mean, how hard is that to do at this point?
5: Oh, well, I mean, it's very hard, obviously, for a financial guy like me. That's not my specialty. But we, we are using some third-party resources. And yeah. In our playbook, one of the things we're saying is one of the key things we need is case, new cases in the U.S. to peak. If you yeah. look at history, we're probably two weeks away from that based on what Italy just did. And we think that's a, a key part of it. Could we have a vaccine that shows up over the next month or two? Let's hope so. doesn't look like that's going to be the case. But if cases can peak, looking around other parts of the world, we kind of know that playbook And there can be, you know, uh, as bad as the second quarter is going to be. And we've seen the numbers. Negative 25% GDP is what some places are thinking. We could also see a really significant bounce back uh, the third and fourth quarter. And that's kind of our base case here.
1: Wow. All right. Well, good stuff. Uh, Always good to catch up with you. Glad everybody's safe and healthy down in Charlotte. Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist for LPL Financial. Joining us on the phone from that fine city in North Carolina. Well,
0: and I love what his research said. You know, in terms of this bear market, putting it in perspective, now worse than 1987. But remember, if you are in a recession, it can take longer to recovery to recover. And that's what these bailout programs, the Fed stimulus, this is what it's all about. Yeah. Um, our ability, help, hoping to kind of grease our ability. Uh, to recover once we get through the health care crisis.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.